in the beginning, the end. So where to start? This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. I realize what I'm about to say comes a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we explore new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guest today is Corinne Zupko. As you'll hear, Corinne has experienced terrible paralyzing anxiety for much of her life. 
She's now a counselor who helps thousands of people one-on-one to get over their fear and anxiety. And she's the author of a wonderful new book, From Anxiety to Love, A Radical New Approach for Letting Go of Fear and Finding Lasting Peace. Hi, Corinne. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited. First off, I really, really enjoyed the book. I got the sense that I was getting the essence of The Course in Miracles teachings without having to read it. Mm. I've known about it, but I've never read it. I've known people that were into it many years ago. But what you wrote about in your book is like the essence of every other spiritual tradition that I've studied in my life. And you did it so beautifully. Oh, thank you. That means so, so much to hear. And I would definitely agree that it is about getting the essence of A Course in Miracles, which is one spiritual pathway of many that are available to us. And for me, it was the pathway that just clicked. It helped the most. It was something that I really needed because I was suffering so deeply. And so I just really appreciate your kind words and hearing you reflect to me that you feel like it was the essence of of the Course and other spiritual pathways. So that brings a smile to my face. (laughs) Your response brings a smile to my face. So many of us experience anxiety at times in our lives. Sometimes it's in response to outer events, sometimes seemingly completely out of the blue. For some people, it's just kind of like a, a fairly minor nuisance, and for others, it can be totally paralyzing. Can you talk about your experience with anxiety and how it took you onto this spiritual path? Definitely. So I resonate with what you just said about the ways that anxiety can manifest In our lives, it really does exist on a continuum where on the low end of the continuum is where we find those more fleeting types of anxieties, that minor nuisance, like you said, the anxieties and fears that we all face on a daily basis. And so then as you go up the continuum, that is where you start seeing the more paralyzing anxiety, the -the out-of-the-blue panic attacks. That's really where you start seeing the diagnosable mental health conditions on that high end of the spectrum. And that is actually where I spent a large part of my life and the time of my life when things got really bad was actually when I was in college. I was a sophomore and I had been already an anxious child. I was actually diagnosed with separation anxiety disorder back when I was two And I had a lot of fears and a lot of worries growing up and, uh, you know, some phobias, but nothing that reached that really debilitating level because I sort of outgrew the separation anxiety from when I was really young, but I felt like the anxiety just sort of morphed and took different forms, like the phobias and fears of getting sick. But when I was in college, that's a time when... Sometimes these types of issues can come to the surface. And I remember very clearly that I was, I think, in the dining hall when I learned that a student had died. And, 
he was supposedly fine the night before and passed away very suddenly the next morning. And I remember just feeling this spike of fear that just came throughout my body. And I was like, how can, how can this happen? You know, how can somebody just be here and then suddenly be gone? And I talked myself down. I kind of calmed myself down so I could get through my day. Went to bed that night. And 3 o'clock in the morning, I remember sitting up in my, I was at the top bunk of my bunk bed. And, you know, my roommate was asleep on the bottom bunk. I remember, like, sitting up and just gasping for air because suddenly it felt like I couldn't breathe. My heart was racing. My whole body was shaking. I was sweating. I just was so overwhelmed with fear and this really intense feeling like I was just going to die next. And I remember, you know, it was pitch black. I climbed down the stairs of the bunk bed and didn't want to wake up my roommate or any of my other suite mates because I was living in a suite at that time. And grabbed the phone, went into the bathroom, and as I remember just sitting there on the bathroom tiles, just shaking and crying, but trying not to cry because it just made it harder to breathe, I called my mom, and she miraculously picked up the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning and helped me kind of figure out that, no, I was not having a heart attack. It was actually a panic attack, and it was my very first one, so it was super scary, and of course I felt like... I was the only one in the world who was feeling that way and was having that much anxiety. And that's one of the tricks that anxiety plays is that it likes to tell us that we're the only one, you know, who feels that way. But my mom instilled hope in me that we'd find help. And I was able to calm myself down after probably at least an hour on the phone. I was able to get calm enough where I could fall back to sleep. But that was kind of the beginning of years of out of the blue panic attacks, lots of uncontrollable anxiety and worry that just wasn't really attached to anything specific. Although there were definitely triggers. A lot of my triggers would always focus around my health. You know, if I had a physical symptom, I would just be like totally freaked out that it meant I was dying of the latest disease. So I definitely was kind of like a hypochondriac as well. And it was at this time, it was actually on the phone call with my mom when I was on the bathroom floor that she was like, Corinne, you know, I tried to talk to you about this spiritual pathway before called A Course in Miracles, and I know you weren't interested, but I really think it can help you. It's all about inner peace. And I was like, bring it on. I will try anything. Up until that point, my mom would try to talk to me about spirituality, and I'd kind of be like, that defiant teenager where I'd cover my ears with my hands and be like, I don't want to hear it. You know, I'm not interested in this. I just want to go be with my friends. So I would shut her down until here I was in this place of just complete desperation where I was willing to try anything. So at that point in time, I did get into counseling. That was very helpful. And I always recommend that folks give counseling a try because it really can be a setting where you can start to sort through a lot of these layers of fear that are bubbling up. But I also found that my anxiety was very existential. It was like based on big questions like, why are we here? Why, if there's a God and if God is love, like people say, how can a loving God create things that die? Like that just did not make sense to me. And so these were a kind of 
thoughts and questions that were really at the core of my anxiety. And so I really needed a spiritual remedy as well. And so that's how I found that A Course in Miracles is an ever-deepening pathway that, in my experience, is like a complete pathway of awakening to the peace and the love that we are. I believe that there's many ways, many avenues to that place, A Course in Miracles just being one of them. But it was a pathway that really clicked for me because it started to answer some of these really, really big questions. So I did not immediately find, like, pure and lasting inner peace. So I want to be really clear that inner peace is really this process. It's not just something you get once and, and have forever. It's a gradual process of this undoing of fear to remember the peace that's already in us. So as I started studying A Course in Miracles, I noticed that my anxiety started to definitely decrease. But fear is like a leaky pipe. It's like a shapeshifter. So if, if it gets better in one area, it might still pop out and spring a leak in another area if you're not getting to, like, the root cause of the anxiety. And this is how it was for me for many years, even with studying A Course in Miracles, where my overall anxiety level would come down, but I'd still be terrified of getting the flu or, you know, whatever the latest disease going around <laughs> happens to be. And I found myself actually years later, in 2009, I had another really debilitating anxiety episode, and it felt even worse than the first time around. It was another episode where I was kind of incapacitated and couldn't really function. It was hard to eat. I was knocked out on the couch for a while. It was, it was just awful. And I realized at that time that I had been using my spiritual practice more like a Band-Aid. I kind of would run to it when I wasn't feeling good and I'd read something that would make me feel better and then I'd sort of put it down and go back to doing whatever I was doing and there wasn't this fundamental shift in perspective. There wasn't this fundamental change in my identity from a small S self, which is my, you know, belief that I'm this separate self in a body, separate from everything, separate from love. There wasn't that shift from that identity of the small S self to a capital S self, which is our true identity. It's our highest self. It is the love that connects us all. It's the inner peace that's within all of us. I had not yet really made that transfer from that lowercase S self to the capital S self. And I'm not claiming that I am there now or that I stay there, but it has definitely happened enough that the anxiety issues that I used to have have completely fallen away where now I'm living life fearlessly and getting on planes and flying by myself, even on turbulent flights, I'm feeling peace. So the change has been very significant in me and it's really showed me that this is the path that works for me. And so when I started getting significantly better in 2009, 2010, around that, in 2010 is when I started writing about what was really helping me, and the result is in the pages of my book, From Anxiety to Love, which writes about my story, but also about the essence, like you said, the tools from A Course in Miracles that really helped me come back to a rock-solid foundation of inner peace, rather, what I say in the book, rather than that termite 
infested foundation of anxiety. So that's my story and how anxiety manifested in my life in a nutshell. Like I said, I spent a large part at that high end of the continuum. Well, I'm glad you survived and found a way out. It's really wonderful how we can turn these type of debilitating conditions into a way of helping other people. It really is. And that's, I feel like, what we're here to heal. Like, we're healed. We're here on this planet to remember the love that we are and the peace that we are to heal ourselves. And so we can then help others. And that's one of the greatest gifts. That's one of the most fulfilling ways that I find satisfaction in my life is knowing that although the time that I went through that pain, you know, was a long time, um, I actually wouldn't change it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't exchange it for anything because it's been such a wonderful teacher and has enabled me now to, to help other people find peace for themselves as well. So that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So from your experience, from your inside experience with such paralyzing anxiety, what have you learned about what the nature of anxiety is and where it arises from? Great question. So what have I learned about the nature of anxiety and where it comes from? So that's actually, we can go very deep with this question. Mm -hmm. Uh, The nature of anxiety, you know, on the surface, it manifests as everything that I described already, the panic attacks, the fear, the fleeting fear. I like to think about the nature of anxiety as really being a manifestation of a fearful thought system. I call it the ego, this fearful thought system that we have in our minds. And it's something that we all have. We all know those fearful thoughts. And it's a thought system that tells us that we are no good, that we should be further along than we are. It's a thought system that tells us that you know, we're not worthy, we're not lovable, that we're all alone, that we're lonely. We know this voice in our minds so well. (laughs) And there's a whole other thought system of love in our mind, and that's where the healing comes in. That's what we have to learn how to listen to. But the nature of anxiety really is a manifestation of this fearful thought system in our mind. And where the anxiety comes from, now, this is where I like getting really, really deep. And I know for some listeners, this might sound totally out there, and that's totally fine. But I needed, like I said, a very deep remedy for the deep fear that I was feeling. So according to A Course in Miracles, we believe that we've separated from God. And when I say God, I mean all-encompassing love. I'm not talking about a dude with a white beard who's like, you know, orchestrating things like puppets down here, not at all. When I use that word God, I'm using the word love with a capital L because I believe that that's what we are made of. Of Course in Miracles teaches that we actually believe that we have separated from capital L love, that we've separated from God, and that this whole world is actually a manifestation of that belief of separation. It's sort of a world that's here to kind of trick us into keeping us thinking that, yes, we are, in fact, separate from God's love. Because just look around. Turn on the news. You know, there's horrible, horrible things that happen every moment in the world. And it's, it's very convincing that we must have separated from love. So 
anxiety comes from this belief in separation. It comes from this belief that we are these separate bodies, separate from our loving divine source. And that part of our mind that believes that we are separate, and we can say that that part of our mind is dreaming this world of separation because, in fact, we have not left our source. The anxiety comes from this sort of sleeping part of our divine mind that's terrified, that thinks that it totally pulled off the separation from love, and it's terrified that it actually did this and, you know, somehow hurt capital L love or separated from that love. So the anxiety actually, on a really deep level, we could say, of course, there's surface reason for being anxious, but we can actually say that the anxiety is actually coming from an unconscious place of in our own mind that is fearful and guilt-ridden that thinks that it is separate and has separated from our source. And so the process of healing anxiety on this very, very deep level is to allow these unconscious fears and feelings of guilt to come to the surface to be looked at to be healed. And there's a specific way that I could talk about how to, you know, work this healing process. And this is how it's worked for me, by allowing fear and guilt in my own mind to come to the surface to be exhumed as my teacher calls it, you know, exhuming, allowing our fears to be exhumed. As those fears come up to the surface and we look at them under the light of love, we can allow those fears then to be healed, to fall away, and we are teaching that unconscious sleeping part of our mind that thinks it's separated from love. We're actually teaching that part of the mind that it didn't separate, that there's nothing to fear, that it's done nothing wrong, that we are wholly innocent and pure pure beings of love and allow that healing to happen, the anxiety then has to fall away. And if you think about it, in divine love, in love with a capital L, there's only love. There is no fear. There is no anxiety. So as we tap into that awareness, as we tap into that knowing more and more, the anxiety just has to fall away. It can't maintain itself on nothingness. So it, it needs our belief in it to, to keep it pumping. So I hope that makes sense. I know it's, it's an explanation that can seem kind of weird and out there, but... It makes sense to me, and I suspect that many of my listeners will will understand that. And you had a very direct experience of that, because as you said, when you were two years old, you were diagnosed with separation anxiety. So you had a, a physical life experience of that kind of separation that you just described on a more theoretical yeah. level. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And when we're children, we don't know, we don't understand the way the world works. We, I think all children go through some degree of separation anxiety just by emerging into this world and by having to learn the language and the ways of our culture, which is a culture of separation. Even our, our most loving, caring parents are usually immersed and completely indoctrinated into this world of physical materiality and separation. Yes, 
I so relate and resonate. I'm so glad you just brought this up because I think you're right that children, you know, just the physical birth is, you know, a, a separation. And coming into this world, you can say that we all have had separation anxiety from love, from God, but we don't recognize it. We think now as adults that we can fill that void that we feel, that deep, deep within, that separation anxiety that we actually have, that we've separated from love, we try to fill that with things. We try to fill that with the right job or the right relationship or enough money. And we think it's our fault. As children, we don't know any better. We somehow assume that it's our fault because one of the things I had a conversation, I did an interview with someone a couple of weeks ago who was talking about this and they were talking about how like when a baby is first put down and left to cry themselves out, mm-hmm. that they feel like they're being left to die and, mm. and they're being abandoned and they don't know, they don't have this sense of that the parent loves them and is going to come and and take care of them after they fall asleep or after they wake up again. They think they're being abandoned and left to die and that pretty much everybody goes through some degree of that kind of separation, anxiety, and trauma. And and that we don't remember it and that we're somehow convinced that this is just the normal way of things and that there's actually something wrong with us and that's why we have to go through all of that so so you talk about how there's a a sense of guilt because we have separated from all that i like to use the term all that is and Mm. and love is i like to think of love with the capital l is is what binds everything together because everything is deeply interconnected and interdependent and I don't, I tend to avoid using the term God, but I totally relate to your use of it in terms of love with a capital L. Yeah, it's a trigger word for sure. It's that word God is used to justify horrible acts in the world. So I love your term, all that is. I really resonate with that. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Corinne Zupko. She's the author of From Anxiety to Love, A Radical New Approach for Letting Go of Fear and Finding Lasting Peace. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. I just wanted to say, too, that what you just described about that, you know, physical act of birth and that separation, that baby feeling like it's being left to die, that abandonment, that's so powerful. I feel like as children, as young children, we still, many of us, I think, still have that memory of being connected to all that is, but we forget it as we grow. We don't remember it as we become adults. And there's a story, I don't know where it comes from, where I read it, or who wrote it. So my apologies for not being able to cite the source. But it was a mom who overheard, she had two young children, 
and the I guess the the baby was maybe in the you know the crib. The child who was older than the the baby, but you know still very young. Mom overheard the older child asking the baby, "Can you tell me what God or love?" You know, but the child said, "Can you tell me what God?" feels like I'm beginning to forget. So there again is that manifestation of this separation where we get so consumed by everything external that we lose that connection with all that is, which is in every single, every single one of us. So I'm so grateful that you brought this piece up because I think it's really important. And I love that story. And I think all of us on some level have a memory of being connected, and that's what we're all longing for and that we're all seeking out, even though we are misguided in how we're trying to fulfill it. Like, we feel that emptiness. We feel this black hole, which I think is endemic in a physical world of separation. It's going to be like a black hole where nothing is going to fill it. Totally. And that's exactly why... We have to find the answer within. We have to find that peace that comes from within. I think everything that makes us happy, truly, truly happy, is going to come from within. And when it comes from within first, when we develop that connection with ourselves in remembering all that is, that is the only thing that will feed that black hole. Nothing outside of ourselves in terms of a job or a relationship or a thing can fill that black hole. So it really is about finding the happiness within first, and then we can actually enjoy things in our life a bit more. We can slow down and appreciate a flower or, you know, a beautiful blue sky with big white puffy clouds. We appreciate the things that we see around us more so when we recognize that the happiness actually doesn't come from those things, but it comes from within. But we can then see that reflection of happiness out there because we're coming from that fulfilled place Mm -hmm. within our hearts. Right, and we can give up that futile struggle to fill that black hole because it's an impossible thing. The black hole is part of the ego realm. Yes. The realm of separation. And we're not going to find... It's like Einstein said, you can't solve the problems that were created at one level by using the thinking of that level. You have to you have to transcend that level of thinking to be able to solve that problem. Definitely. I'm obsessed with Einstein. I love he has so many quotes. He that does. To me are so profoundly spiritual and here, you know, he was this incredible genius and scientist and yet says these, you know, has these these quotes that we can learn from that deeply point us to this direction that we're that we're talking about. And he has this wonderful quote that's so amazing to come from a scientist that that experience of separation that it's just an illusion. Yes. Yes. And to come from right. someone like him ah. it's so amazing. It really is. I've always wanted to to read more and learn more about Einstein because um, some of his quotes really are, are incredible about like you said the illusory nature of the world. And I think another quote was something to the effect of, I want to know how God thinks and the rest is just details. And he said something to that effect. And I don't know what context he said that in, but good stuff. Mm -hmm. 
You write at the beginning of the book that we hold many false perceptions in our mind and we hold on to mistaken ways of seeing because they make us unhappy, that we're all addicted to some degree to being afraid and miserable. We think our problems or enemies are outside in the world, but in fact, they're just really mostly inside of us within our own habitual ways of thinking. And that we then project all that stuff from inside of us onto the world, which then creates a kind of vicious cycle that just convinces us of the reality of this mistaken way of thinking and seeing the world. Yes, yes. What you just read, I love this. And I love that we're able to discuss this so deeply because it sounds like your show and your listeners are up for this deeper metaphysical stuff. But it's been my experience that if we, if all that is, is abstract, you can think about all that is being a mind, being, you know, a loving, pure mind, not a body. We're minds, not bodies. And if that's so, if we have those fearful, you know, unconscious guilt and fear thoughts in our mind, we do this thing, and it's interesting to see how Freud was on to some of this with some of his terms, one of his terms being projection. And this is a term that I write about in my book and that is discussed in The Course in Miracles where we will often put our stuff on things that we see. So for instance, the example that I give in the book is I tend to not like winter. I, I'm much more of a spring, summer, and fall person. And when it's really cold out, I'm cold and not always liking that I'm cold. And so an example of projection is that I might look out the window and see a squirrel or a deer and think, oh, that poor squirrel or that poor deer, they must be so cold. They're not cold. They're adapted to the weather. They put, you know, they grow thicker fur and put on some fat to keep them warm throughout the winter. They're not cold. It's the idea in my mind that I don't like the cold that I am putting onto them and therefore saying like, oh, you know, they must be freezing when in fact they're not. And we do this all the time. We do this with putting our beliefs and our perceptions. We, we see through our filters. We aren't, you know, seeing things as they are. We're seeing through our own mistaken beliefs. So... The world is almost like a mirror. You can think about the world as being like a mirror, that when we are pouring energy into our thoughts of fear and hatred, that just creates, that is just then reflected back to us about seeing and, and experiencing more hatred and fear in the world. It's almost like we have that thought in our mind. And then we have an experience that then justifies that thought in our mind, but that experience is interpreted through an already fearful perspective. So it just reinforces the fact that, you know, our thoughts must, must be accurate because here's this fearful and scary thing, you know, happening. And so I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said something to the effect of, you know, you can't overcome hatred with more hatred. You can only overcome hatred with love. So whatever we're faced with, it's important that we start to learn how to come from a place of love and we will then have experiences, even if challenging experiences come up, 
we can still have experiences that justify our decision to see with love instead of seeing with fear. And I talk about an example in my book about this, and I feel like I have so many examples in my life where I've been in situations that have been challenging, but I've committed myself to wanting to see them differently, to wanting to see through love instead and have that love reinforced in my awareness. So, you know, we, I want to take it a step deeper. We do this projection thing here on the level of the world all the time, like I described, and to go deeper with this, the course is actually saying that we've projected the whole entire world because we had that fear thought that we are, you know, guilty for thinking that we actually separated from God. If the Course says we had the tiny mad idea that we'd be better off separate from God, we had this tiny mad idea that we forgot to laugh at. We took it seriously, and through a grand process of projection, that's actually how the world came to be. Think like the Big Bang. The moment that the Big Bang happened was this moment that our pure loving mind projected fear and guilt, and it became concrete, you know, it became form, there became this belief that there is something else outside of me. And so this projection stuff works on this level of form, but we can also take it very deep in terms of, you know, looking at the world as a, as not our home, as a grand illusion of projection from this unconscious part of our one mind that's shared, that is dreaming this whole dream of separation. That's a very challenging concept for many people in our world to get. Definitely. Another thing you write, which really is very much in line with what you just said, is our mind is not in our body. Our body is inside our mind. The whole world we perceive is inside our mind. And the body is an effect of the mind. We think of the outside world as a cause, and we also think of our bodies as a cause, like as a cause of our suffering through illness or other physical things. But it's our mind that is the cause because it is dreaming a dream of separation. Yes. And there's some things, like we know that our senses are not seeing the world as it really is. It's just taking data impulses that we receive through our senses and then inside in our mind somehow we are taking all those signals and we're putting them together into like a holographic image a three-dimensional even four-dimensional image moving through time that we then mistake for reality and as you said it's it's pretty much loaded with all of our past conditioning and the effects of our, our traumas and, and memories of past experience. It's quite a confusing mess that we have to untangle and unravel. And that seems to be the essence of what this book is about and your work with anxiety and fear. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I am so glad that you brought this up because you are speaking from a scientific standpoint that we recognize that our senses do not see the world as it really is. Like you're saying, 
it's these signals and these bits and pieces that our brains put together and like you said so eloquently that it's loaded with our past viewpoints and you know our past beliefs and, and biases as well so I love when we look at this from that scientific angle and I I'm not well educated enough to speak about quantum physics but you know I heard a scientist say that nobody's actually even proven that matter actually exists. Like, even when you feel like you're touching something, there's actually still space <laughs> between, you know, those two things, those two things touching. So looking, you know, deeply into science, I feel like that can lead people to the same type of understanding. And you're right that my book is definitely about untangling this mess in our minds. But one of the beautiful things about the pathway of A Course in Miracles is that it says that we don't have to follow fear through all of its circuitous routes for it to be undone. In other words, we don't have to spend a lifetime untangling anything because when the root fear is healed, everything else falls away. That root fear being the belief that we are separate from all that is. So if we can be willing to look at that fear and be willing to allow that fear to be healed of our belief that we are separate from all that is, every other fearful belief is just going to fall away when that belief goes. And so that's why in my book, I go deeply into these deeper teachings because in my experience, I started wanting to heal the belief that I am separate from all that is. I started being willing to see Corinne, my small self, I started being willing to question, you know, is this really who I am? Yes, it's my experience of who I am. I wake up every day in a body, thinking I'm Corinne, absolutely. But I became willing to question that and just ask, is there another way to see my small self? Is there another way to see Corinne? Is there another way to see my body? And going down that road led to having experiences that actually were actual experiences that gave me glimpses of the oneness that joins us all, of the love that permeates everything. And those experiences, to me, have become these foundational cornerstones in having trust in this new thought system, in this, you know, the practices that I write about in the book, and, and, you know, trust in the fact that we are one with all that is. That experience does more than any of this, you know, intellectual understanding that we could possibly get just from, you know, reading. So in my book, I really try to give a lot of opportunity to have people have an experience of who they are beyond their small self. And I do that through providing meditations and journal prompts. You know, it's all, it's all work that is very worthwhile work that we can all begin and have those same types of experiences that show us that we are actually joined with, with all that is. And in that awareness, anxiety cannot exist. It has to fall away.
you're just joining us, I'm talking with Corinne Zupko. She's the author of From Anxiety to Love, A Radical New Approach for Letting Go of Fear and Finding Lasting Peace. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. I would love for you to share some of those experiences that you had, those direct experiences that gave you the experience of not being separate, but actually being part of the whole experience. And I've had at least several of those experiences myself, which are, are absolutely wonderful, but I'd love to hear some of your experiences of that. Definitely. So, oh, there's so many. Which one should I begin with? You know what? I'll begin with one from my book because it relates to anxiety. And in addition to all the fears and anxieties that I had, I also was very fearful of getting blood drawn or getting needles or being in a hospital or anything like that. So medical stuff was huge anxiety trigger for me. I decided, this is years ago, that I wanted to investigate a physical symptom that I have had my whole life. So I was referred to a doctor who specializes in, like, looking at your blood. So surprise, surprise, when I was in that office, the doctor wanted to do some blood draws and, you know, get some blood samples. And I remember I was sitting there, and the nurse came in, and she said so why are you here? And I started talking about why. And she goes, oh, that's not good. <laughs> and then I said, well, you know, it's just stuff that's been happening my whole life, but I just wanted to get a look at it, you know, find out what it was about. And she goes, well, that's not good, you know, that you've had it your whole life. And then she goes, don't you pass out on me. So guess what I did? I nearly passed out. I had that response where everything, you know, suddenly starts feeling like it's kind of getting white and I couldn't really hear so well and I felt like I was I was passing out. So they had to put my feet up and give me juice and I was fine. But I went into that situation looking for witnesses for fear. Like, you know, I was afraid. I was looking to find out if there was something wrong. And I could have gone down the path of really judging that nurse for being a lousy nurse because, I mean, that was very insensitive for her to say. But I decided instead to kind of take responsibility that I somehow called forth these witnesses for fear. And they justified my choice for fear. So that nurse was wholly willing to rise to the occasion and play that role of being a fearful witness for me. So I looked at that as I'm somehow, somehow, I don't understand how my unconscious mind is bringing forth a situation that reinforced my choices for fear. After that experience, I said, I don't want to do that again. I want to call forth witnesses for love. I want to have an experience that shows me that I am connected with love. So that appointment went on and I met with a doctor and he rewarded me, I'm joking, but he rewarded me for getting through the appointment with having to get more blood work done. And this time I had to go to a hospital to get it done because it was like, I guess, more rare types of testing. So I hated needles, but I hated hospitals even more. So I was very anxious again, having to go for the second round of lab work. 
but I was determined to have an experience that would call forth witnesses for love instead. And I set that intention. This time, when I walked into the outpatient lab at this hospital, one of my friend's mom was sitting behind the counter when I got in, so it was a friendly face. And we started talking just about how things were going, and without my asking, I didn't know that she was a nurse. Without my asking, she walked me into the back, and she did the, the lab draw, and we chatted, you know, the whole time, and it was totally fine. It went very smoothly, and when I was leaving... She said something that just stopped me dead in my tracks. She said, Corinne, she's like, it was a Monday. She said, it's so interesting. She's like, I'm glad I was here. She's like, I never work on Mondays. And I got called in 30 minutes before you showed up. And that to me, that moment filled my heart with such electrified love. It showed me that I'm the dreamer of this dream, that I called forth a witness for love that justified my choice for love. It showed me that I'm not alone, that we are taken care of, that the universe loves us, that we are supported. And so that was a very pivotal moment for me in developing my trust. Now, I'll share another example that has to do with a relationship. So I shared this example actually very recently at a Course Miracles conference that I spoke at in San Francisco just a couple of weeks ago. And it has to do with a cauliflower. So I actually married my college sweetheart. My husband is my life partner. And of course, we've been together now for quite some time. And in a relationship, whatever relationship it may be, with it, whether it's a friend or a partner or a family member, we all know how to push each other's buttons, right? We're all good at triggering one another. And one of the patterns that my husband and I have in our relationship is that I have a pattern of occasionally making him feel corrected where perhaps I might say something like, for an example, something that's happened in the past, you know, you should blow the dishwasher this way because you'll fit more dishes in. And that's my way of doing things, whereas his way is his way. And my stepping in and correcting him, he doesn't like. It doesn't make him feel good. His pattern is that he doesn't always share his feelings right away. So I sometimes have to ask him, you know, what's wrong, what's going on, for him to share his feelings. And he doesn't like that pattern, and I don't like that pattern because I don't like feeling like I have to draw anything out of him. I want to just share. So we were shopping in the food store, and he picked up this big cauliflower that had some black spots on it. And I saw it in the shopping cart, and I was like, ooh, that's a big cauliflower, but it's kind of on the older side. Let me go switch it out for a fresher one. So I don't remember if I asked him or not, but I went and got a smaller cauliflower that was fresher, and I put that in the shopping cart instead. And a day later, I could tell something was wrong. So I was like, what's wrong? You know, you seem like something's off, like I did something that upset you. He's like, remember yesterday, the whole cauliflower? He's like, I wanted the biggest cauliflower I could find. And I was coming from the perspective of I wanted the freshest cauliflower that I could find. So there was an example of how unstable our perceptions are. There's different ways to see everything. And we both felt terrible in that moment because there I hurt him again. I made him feel corrected. And there he upset me again in that I had to draw out his feelings and he didn't just share them. 
So we're both standing there feeling terrible for hurting one another. And this is a pattern, you know, that surfaced here and there over the years. We've really tried to work on it. But in that moment, we kind of recognize, like, here it is again. We can't necessarily fix this on this level of the world. We can instead call for help with this thought system outside of our current thought system. So like that Einstein quote that you referenced before, we can't solve a problem from the same thought system in which we made it. We need a, another thought, a thought system outside. So looking at this as a problem within the ego thought system, thought system of fear, thought system of the world, a prayer came to mind for me, and the prayer is from A Course in Miracles, and it's, I give you to the Holy Spirit, which is a course term, so think about that as just your higher mind. I give you to my higher mind, our higher mind, as part of myself. And as my husband and I stood there, we said this to one another, you know, we're essentially just giving each other over to something greater than ourselves. I felt in that moment a love in my heart that felt electrified. It felt greater than any love that I feel on a moment-to-moment daily basis and a moment-to-moment basis. It was a love that was beyond what we typically experience in this world. And in that moment, I knew that we both were having a holy instant. We were both sharing an experience of something greater than ourselves. And that, to me, was another experience that helped me feel that connection to something beyond my small sense of self. And again, in that connection is just where fear and anxiety have to fade away. Now, will this pattern come up in my relationship again? Maybe. It hasn't yet. It very well may. But I do believe that there was a very significant shift in our development of trust in that experience, and I was changed for sure as a result of it. And I've noticed myself at times just letting my husband do things his way because it's, it's his way, and I'm, you know, I don't have that urgency that I did before to want things to be done my way. So that's a beautiful healing example of just having an experience of something beyond ourselves. And I, I'd love to hear your experiences too. Okay. And after that, I really want to go into more of of what you were just talking about. And you also use the term inner therapist and how we work with that. So that's where I'd like to go after I describe my experience. And this is a recurring experience I've had many times in my life. And I think it almost always occurs in a situation with somebody else who's angry at me. And I just feel like I'm at an impasse. But instead of reacting to it in my usual ways, somehow I'm drawn inside, deeply, deeply inside, and I feel myself sink way, way, way down deep inside myself into this warm, safe place where I feel completely invulnerable, where nothing can harm me. It doesn't matter what the outside world does to my physical body or my personality or who I think I am, that in that inner space where I feel completely whole and safe and one with something beyond this world, it's, it's so powerful. And it's one of those direct experiences that 
that I just love when it happens. Oh, I'm so grateful that you shared that because listening to this, I'm sure other people listening, you know, can relate to our stories. Just listening to your experience brings me there. Just listening to you describe, you know, that sinking of going with deep and down in that really warm and safe place and your words about this recognition that it's a piece that goes beyond what this external world does or how it impacts our bodies. It's, it's this deeper space. So thank you for sharing that. That's really powerful. So let's get into the idea and practice of how we work with what you call in the book our inner therapist, which is synonymous with our higher self or our essential self or Holy Spirit or, you know, whatever term anyone's comfortable with, just so that we can all have a reference connection point to it. Definitely. Thank you for adding those additional terms in because it is important we use whatever word is meeting our comfort level. So... The inner therapist in our mind is exactly what you just described, our higher self, our essential self, our higher mind. I like to think of it as the thought system of love that exists in our minds right now. So your inner therapist is not separate from you. It's not something outside of you. It is part of you. It's part of your very own mind, and it's part of your mind that is outside of that fearful ego thought system. So you have a part of your mind that you can call upon that is outside of that whirlwind of fear of the the ego thought system. So this part of our mind is what I called upon in both examples that I just gave. It's that part that I turned to and asked, asked for help in both of those situations. And the way that we work with it now... I share a very simple three-step healing process in my book, and this is based on the teachings of A Course in Miracles. I also break it down further in my book because we're so accustomed to listening to the complicated voice of the ego that we might go through these three steps and be like, uh, nothing happened, you know, now what? And so that's why I break it down further in the book. But healing is very simple. The voice of the inner therapist is very simple. It's very clear but quiet it's always loving it's it's like resting in that space that you described of this knowing that you're completely safe that nothing can harm you that's that's what the message is of our inner therapist that those are the messages that our inner therapist delivers to us so to work with our inner therapist we first need willingness so step number one is to find your willingness to see whatever your issue is differently. So whether it's an issue, to use your example of somebody, you know, being angry at you or whether your issue is a relationship problem or anxiety or depression or feeling alone, whatever it is, finding your willingness to see that problem differently. Willingness is the precursor for change. Before anything changes, we have to be willing. We have to make space in our minds for a new shift, a new perception to come in. And we do that through finding our willingness. So find your willingness to see your problem differently. And you can do that by just saying, I am willing to see my anxiety differently or whatever the problem may be. 
The second step is to give your willingness to your inner therapist. So give your willingness to see your issue differently to your higher mind and ask for a miracle instead. Now, miracles are not like, you know, poof, suddenly there's something, there's like a million dollars in my hand that manifested out of thin air. That's not a miracle. What I mean when I say the word miracle is based on A Course in Miracles. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. So we can think about that as an internal miracle, shifting our perception from fear to love, or an external miracle of an expression of love. Every time we express love, we are expressing miracles. We're performing miracles when we're expressing love because love is what we are. So you're asking, by giving your willingness to your inner therapist to see your problem differently and asking for a miracle, you're asking for that restored sense of love. You're asking for that restored sense of peace and asking to see your problem differently. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Corinne Zupko. She's the author of From Anxiety to Love, A Radical New Approach for Letting Go of Fear and Finding Lasting Peace. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Again, just to recap, step number one, find your willingness to see your problem differently. Step two, give your willingness to your inner therapist and ask for the miracle. And then step three is to trust that it's done. You've given your issue, your problem, your willingness over to your inner therapist. And, of course, Miracles teaches that the answer is given the moment that it's asked. The moment we ask for help, the answer is given right there. But we might still have a lot of layers of fear that are blocking us from being aware of the answer. And so in that case, we can just trust that the answer is going to be received the moment that we are ready to receive it. Trusting, in my experience, can be the hardest part. It can be tough to just wait, to just trust. So I found myself sometimes writing down my problem and asking myself, like, am I willing to give this over to my inner therapist? And am I willing to trust? And if I am, that means that I'm going to put this piece of paper into a box or a jar, and that means I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I'm going to hand it over, and I'm just not going to worry about it anymore. I will be honest with you that there have been times that I've recognized through radical honesty that, like, wait a second, I am not willing to stop worrying about this. I'm going to keep worrying about it. And so I'm not ready to put it in the box or a jar. I'm not ready to hand it over. And so that is a beautiful thing to see because then we can sort of take a step back and look at our unreadiness as our thing that we give over to our inner therapist and ask for, you know, a shift surrounding that. So that box exercise I actually talk about in the book, it's, it's a really helpful exercise to sort of give ourselves that space to see if we are, in fact, really ready to, you know, to hand something over. And if we're not, it's so important that there is no guilt 
and that we not feel bad about it and that we just accept that that's where we're at. The most kindest thing we can do for ourselves is to accept where we are in our journey. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in connection with that willingness, sometimes even when we're not ready and we're not really willing, you suggest that we just be willing to be willing, which gets us off the hook, but it, it creates an opening. Yes. Yes, it does. I, I've used that question so many times in my own life. We have to be so honest that there might be times that we're not willing to see something differently. So, for instance, I or any of us might be in a conflict, let's say, with a friend or family member. And if you are radically honest and ask yourself, am I willing to see this person or this conflict differently? We might be like, no, you know, they're a jerk. Like, they need to see things my way. I'm right. (laughs) And there, clearly, with radical honesty, we're not willing to see it differently. And that's a beautiful thing to see. So we can then ask ourselves, like you just said, am I willing to be willing to see this differently? And I might say, oh, well, yeah, you know, I'm willing to see, I'm willing to be willing to see it differently. And just like you said, that creates this openness in our minds. Openness and willingness are the precursors for change. And so there again, we're giving our inner therapist, our higher mind, some space to come in to give us a new way of seeing it. Because if we're closed off, and not willing to see something differently, we're not giving this part of our mind any room to give us a new thought, to give us a new perception. We have to create that mental openness for that new perception to come in. So I love that question as a means for finding our willingness. And we can even take it back a step further. If you're not willing to be willing to see something differently, are you willing to be willing to be willing to see something differently? So you can kind of just keep taking it a step back until you find that tiny bit of willingness. And that's everything. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing how it's all about creating space and openness. And that includes giving our problems over to our inner therapist or our higher self or whatever we want to call it. And then trusting that, that the solution will be given and not trying to figure it out for ourselves from our, old, mm. from our old ways of thinking and also allowing the space for a solution that is completely outside of our realm of thinking. Yes, yes. That's such a key point and an important point to make. So thank you for bringing that up because part of the compulsion to want to keep worrying about a problem is that we think we're better off figuring out the solution ourselves instead of relying on this part of our mind outside of that fearful thought system. And so we can actually come to rely on the loving thought system in our mind to make space for this new perception to come in, for this new answer to come in. We can get solutions that oftentimes come about in ways that we could not possibly have comprehended. I can't tell you how many times I've been stuck with something. And even, for instance, just like a big to-do list, like I had a thousand things on my to-do list, and doing it myself was just feeling stressed out and overwhelmed. 
And that simple act of saying, hey, you know, inner therapist, help. Like, I want to see this differently. And a restored sense of ease, of peace coming in. So now I could do what I needed to do without that sense of strain. And things got done maybe more efficiently or maybe I didn't even finish everything on the list. But there was now that sense of ease and not strain. And that was a really nice little shift to have with an example just as simple as a to-do list. So... We have to remember that there's something in us that knows the way. And to give an example, too, I learned from another one of my teachers, John Kabat-Zinn, who teaches mindfulness and has really been a key player in bringing mindfulness into mainstream America. I learned from him that he said many Nobel laureates have gotten their breakthroughs in stillness in the middle of the night when that ego-logical mind is subdued and that higher mind just kind of breaks through with an idea. So I love just how ideas can come to us in stillness. Mm -hmm. And Einstein says that his came like a bolt of lightning out of, you know, completely beyond his own realm of thinking. Wow. That's really cool. That's really cool. So it's trusting in in the unknown, trusting in the mystery that exists outside of, of what we think and what we think we know. Yes, yes. There's a Course Miracle lesson that says, I do not know what anything is for. And part of our problem is that we are constantly, and I mean, this is what our brains are wired to do, is to judge, is to make meaning, is to, you know, try to understand. And when we step into this space of I don't know what anything is for and trusting the mystery, we can then allow things to unfold gracefully as they will without getting caught in all the stories that we can, you know, lay on top of things as they happen. You know, stories are really, again, going back to projections, which what we talked about much earlier, that our stories can help us if they're positive stories, but they can also really hold us back if they're negative stories. And so instead, stepping away from those stories in general, coming into this open space of really trusting the unknown and knowing that I don't know what anything means, you know, I don't know what anything is for, that is another way of stepping into the openness of really finding that open freedom within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Radical humility. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Radical humility. Beautiful. <laughs> I talk about some of those radical things in the book, like radical honesty being another one, where we're being so honest with ourselves and with our inner therapist about everything that goes through our mind. So rather than dismissing a socially unacceptable thought as like, you know, just denying that we ever had the thought, we can actually say, you know, oh, I'm going to catch that yucky, icky, judgmental thought. I just thought it. And inner therapist, here you go. And this radical honesty helps us in coming to and step into this awareness of love because we're no longer hiding anything. We're no longer hiding anything in our mind. We're saying to our, our inner therapist, our higher mind, I'm willing to just expose all the darkness to the light to have that healing. 
And there's another wonderful thing that you bring up, which I've also learned from another path, and that is you suggest that we give everything over to our inner therapist, including all the things that we like and love about our life and about the world. Yeah. Yeah. So even the things that we love can be used by the ego thought system to keep us believing that we are separate from all that is. And so rather than allow, you know, that that fearful thought system to use things that we love on its behalf, I like to think about giving everything, even the things that I hold most near and dear to myself, I like to think about giving everything over to my inner therapist because my inner therapist will use everything that I love then to help me wake up, to help me wake up to, to the love that permeates everything. So by handing everything over, my relationships, my body, my health, my money, everything, by handing it all over, I'm not leaving any space for that ego thought system to misuse anything because I've repurposed all of it to be used on behalf of my awakening. And I was reading a post from another one of my friends and teachers, her name's Myron Jones, that if we aren't consciously doing things with our inner therapist, by default, we're kind of doing them with ego. And there's nothing to feel bad about that there because that's just kind of how we tend to operate. But the moment that we realize that like, oh, you know, I haven't thought of divine love. I haven't thought of my inner therapist. So I'm just going to now give everything over, you know, to my inner therapist. Everything from before that I didn't think about, maybe everything later. That's really all that matters. But I really liked what she had said that, you know, if you're not consciously doing something with your inner therapist, you're kind of defaulting to the ego. So I really like the idea and it works for me in handing everything, everything over to know that it's all going to be used on behalf of us awakening up to the love that we are. And I love to say, universe, you know me better than I do. You know what I need and what I really most deeply want better than I do. I leave it all in your hands. Mm, mm, I love that. That is beautiful. And so, so true. The universe does know us better than we know ourselves. So, beautiful statement. And there's another thing that you say that's connected with that, that our inner therapist or our higher self or the universe won't respond to us unless we invite it to. We have to open ourselves and be receptive to it. Otherwise, the ego voice is much louder and will drown out everything. And it's, it's sort of like, I don't know if, if you're familiar with Star Trek, they have this non-interference principle, which I think is, is really beautiful. And I think that's the way that the universe and our higher self works with us. It waits for us to ask. Yes. I love Star Trek. So I love that you just brought that up with that non-interference principle. And that is so true because we have free will. And the Course in Miracles says that use the word God again, so all that is, God honors even our miscreations because God, or all that is, is not going to interfere with what we want. 
that's when, you know, people can get so tripped up, like, well, why didn't God intervene and prevent this horrible thing from happening? Because, you know, people do these horrible things. People, people choose to commit these terrible acts, and it's the healing, you know, that we have to choose that we want. So, yes, we have to invite this new perception in. We have to invite this higher mind as part of ourself to be the one steering our ship because I always like to joke around that, you know, the ego was steering my ship into the ground. Like it, it, things were not going in a good direction and it was very, very painful. And when I started learning how to put my inner therapist behind the wheel, I really started being able to just step back and rest and trust and experience comfort and ease and yeah, Asking this part of our mind is really, really important in our healing process, calling upon it for sure. And again, reiterating that it's really important to give ourselves the space to make these quote-unquote mistakes because that's how we learn. And I don't know if you're at all familiar with the Tarot. I'm not terribly familiar with it, but there's this wonderful principle seeing it as a journey of the fool of the innocent, that we go through life and we need to have a certain range and smattering of experiences in order to gain the wisdom to come back around and realize who we really are. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful and perfect because if we can all come to appreciate our challenges as exactly what you just described, that we have all these experiences that are there just to help us come back to who it is that we really are. Can we then be grateful for our challenges? I'm grateful for my anxiety. I'm grateful for having been through all the darkest times and the challenging moments. They weren't easy and they didn't feel good, but they brought me to where I am now and still continue because I'm so hooked on this pathway of awakening, it's like I don't need the anxiety as that catalyst anymore to push me to find a new perception. I'm, I'm happy to keep working these principles because I know that I want that experience of love. I want to know that love that we've all forgotten. I want to know that again. I know now that that makes me happy. So what you just shared is a beautiful reminder that we can be grateful for our challenges. They can teach us. And you've probably heard this, but there are many mystics who talk about our lives, the human experience as being an example of God choosing to forget himself to use a, a gender pronoun where it really doesn't fit and that it does it deliberately to have this life experience and there's a poem by Kabir that touches on this and it's probably sacrilege to paraphrase a poem but it's about our job is to come down here into this world and get really messed up and that's what this world is about and then we use all of the, the challenges that we face, all of the ups and downs, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, 
to grow and to learn and to find our way back to remembering who we truly are. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And I've heard what you said before about mystics, you know, many saying that there's part of God that chooses to forget on purpose. The conceptualization through the course and that I talk about in the book, that part that chose to forget is this part of our unconscious mind that believes in separation, but nobody forced us to do this. So in other words, this is our choice to experience this, you know, state of separation and that God, all that is, is wholly loving. So I write about in the book how important it is for us to get super clear and expunge any unconscious beliefs in our mind that the universe would do anything bad to us because I do not believe that at all. I believe that the universe, God, love is wholly loving And any challenge, we could say, comes from that ego-fearful thought system. But there are phrases that we use, like, I'm sure you've heard some of these, God gives you only what you can handle, or God takes away the good in your life to make room for the better. If you really look at those closely, and these are phrases that I used to say to myself all the time, because I found them comforting, but if we look at them more closely, they actually proclaim, like, a God that's kind of mean. Like, why would God take something good away? (laughs) Even if something better was coming, like, you know, something good we might love. So I like to really practice releasing any and all ideas that the love, that divine love could possibly cause pain. That's just not true. Divine love is or does only any, loving. Or does anything to us that it, it loves us so much that it totally allows, that love is like space, that it just allows us to do whatever we choose to do, knowing, mm-hmm. knowing so deeply that there's nothing that we can do that will change the reality of who we really are. And there's nothing that we can do for that love to stop loving us. It's, always, always there, and we are perfect and wholly innocent and have nothing to feel guilty about. It's like, you know, I, I hear many times that example of the prodigal son, where, you know, the son wanders away and, and loses all of his father's money and then comes back, and the father just welcomes the son back with, with open arms. That love is still there. No matter what we do, we can't change the fact that that love still is loving and still loves us. So, yeah, this is beautiful that this came up. I think this is another really important piece to keep in mind along the journey. Yeah, and that that love, that wholeness will always be there after we get off our theme park ride, which is a term that you use, which I I really liked. Yeah, yes, that, that love is still there. It's unchanged. The theme park ride is like this crazy roller coaster that we're on in this world where there's, you know, this twisted fun house of sickness and death and it's all a big illusion you know if you know if you remember the acclaimed movie critics Siskel and Ebert Mm -hmm. Roger Ebert passed away but as he was a few days before he died he was in and out of consciousness and when he was awake he wrote his wife a note and on the note he wrote this is all an elaborate hoax 
And his wife, at first, thought he was just on too much medication or that he was hallucinating, but she realized he was actually talking about this world, that this world is like that roller coaster that isn't true. It's not our true nature. It's not who we are. It's a screen. It's like, you know, almost like cardboard cutouts playing this game of separation. And the love that's beyond that is our truth. It's who we really are. So I just always loved that example that this world is an elaborate hoax and that, you know, really, truly, our job is to wake up to that and to wake up to the eternal love that joins us all. Mm, I love that story, too. And there's another wonderful thing that you say in your book, and it comes out of, like, how we we tend to judge ourselves and we judge others and we want to change others. We always think we're right. And you say that the way to heal others is to love them so much that you're willing to allow your own mind to be healed. Yeah. Oh, yes. This is a big one because we can get so caught in fear about other people. For instance, what you're referencing has to do with the story linked to my mom where I was really worried about my mom and headaches that she was having and I realized that my worry about her was only strengthening my belief that she is a separate body, that I am a separate body, that we're separate from each other, that we're both separate from love. Worrying about her in that way was only reinforcing the fearful thought system. So I realized that I love her so much, <laughs> whoever we love in our lives so much, can we love them enough or so much that we will be willing to allow our own mind to be healed? As I heal, others heal as well. I just shared a quote on my Facebook page that said something to the effect from A Course in Miracles about how you are blessed by every beneficent thought of your brothers everywhere. You do not even have to know them or they, you that every act of good, every choice for love, we are collectively healing the one split mind. We're collectively healing the world as we individually choose love. And we might not necessarily see that, you know, in our immediate lives, but that it's there. So we can heal others. We can help others. We can love others by allowing our minds to be healed. Mm, I love that, and I, I feel the same way. That sort of goes with along the lines of the hundredth monkey syndrome that we're adding to all it is. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And that we can bring, we can add the best. I mean, we have a choice of what we add to it. And to add from love, to give from love, knowing that there is no separation and that everything we do affects everything. Yeah. And I think yeah, that's yeah, such yeah. an important thing for us to realize in this world today because the world is now so close in a way. Every little thing has a rippling out effect that affects everything. Yeah, definitely. And we can have that ripple effect be that we are spreading more fear or that ripple effect can be that we are spreading more love. And so love might mean we stand up and we say something, you know, for something that isn't right. It might mean that it is something, you know, that we, that we do in our minds. 
it's going to look different in any given moment, but ultimately it is always about this choice of healing our own minds to spread more love because we know that the world needs it and we know that that love is the answer. Love is the way. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been so wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It was an absolute delight. And folks can find me on my website, which is fromanxietytolove.com. You can find my book anywhere online, From Anxiety to Love, and of course, I'm on all the social media. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. I've enjoyed this so much. I have too. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Corinne Zupko. She's the author of From Anxiety to Love, A Radical New Approach for Letting Go of Fear and Finding Lasting Peace. She's helped thousands of people counseling one-on-one. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.